Hello and welcome to the Surf Simply podcast. I'm Rue Hill and Harry and Asher are not with me this week. Instead, I'm going to be talking with William Finnegan, author of Barbarian Days, A Surfing Life, a fantastic book which I read recently and you may have seen doing the rounds on the interwebs. Regular listeners to the show will will know that we've talked about uh, Bill before and about the book and I've been really excited to have the chance to speak with him for quite a while. For those of you who aren't familiar with the book, Uh, William Finnegan is a political correspondent for The New Yorker, but before he became a very successful professional journalist, he was a very good surfer at a very young age growing up in Hawaii and went on an extraordinary adventure around the South Pacific where he was one of the first people to surf at Tavarua. I really enjoyed the book because it explored through a series of well-articulated anecdotes the changing role that surfing had in his life as he grew up and his priorities shifted. So without further ado, I'll introduce Bill. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com. Hi, Bill, and uh, thanks very much for joining us on the Surf Simply podcast. Uh, my pleasure. So I've just finished reading uh, Barbarian Days, which I really, really enjoyed. Uh, I'm not the first person to say that uh, you sort of seem to be uniquely placed as both a writer and a surfer. You know, in the past, there's been so many surfers that perhaps can't articulate themselves as well as writers can and, and writers that don't really understand surfing enough to be able to talk about it. Um, and Barbarian Days is, is the first book that I think has really bridged that gap, uh, as I'm sure a lot of people have told you already. Uh, for our listening audience that haven't read the book and aren't familiar with it, could you just outline for them what the book's about? Well, it's about a lifetime of surfing. I've been surfing for about 50 years and uh, grew up in California and Hawaii, uh, traveled around a bit, lived all over. I live in New York City now. Um, I make my living as a writer primarily writing about politics, uh, but I have this whole other side of my life, which has been um, uh, kind of serious surfing, and um, I, I was trying to account for that and, and, and how I've uh, managed to thread, you know, a, a surfing life through, through the rest of life. It's a memoir. And the, the book is sort of split into, I, I suppose, five main sections there's there's sort of your youth growing up in California and then spending a lot of time in Hawaii when your dad was working on Hawaii Five O out there uh, and then later on as a young adult in your 20s you go on this incredible trip around the Pacific which ends in in uh, you living in South Africa during uh, apartheid and uh, and then as a sort of young professional in San Francisco, uh, then later on in New York, as uh, once your career is sort of established, writing for the New Yorker, uh, and then a, a part that really stuck out to me is your your visits to Madeira before a lot of the best waves on the island were destroyed, and there's so many amazing anecdotes in there. Um, I was just wondering if if you could share with us one of your favourite anecdotes from the book. Well, um, nobody's ever asked me this question before. There's uh, one scene, uh, one story in the book takes place in Madeira at a spot called Jardim do Mar, um, which was a great, great right point break uh, before they built a seawall that messed it up. Um, one night I went out there, late one afternoon, there was nobody out, and uh, so I wasn't sure how big it was. It's a wave that can get quite big um, and hold its shape. It's like a 
big wave point break, very rare. And I went out late in the afternoon, and it was a bit windy, but but good. And 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 then I was joined by my friend Peter, the other guy I sort of got to know Madeira with year after year in the '90s. And uh, it was a little sketchy. We were both on guns, um, Ado Brewer in my case, um, but um, it was fine for a while. And and uh, and then it wasn't so fine. It kept getting bigger. And our boards started to feel not big enough, um, even though they were guns. And at a certain point, um, we were paddling over these huge sets, and and Peter started saying strange things like, um, "Well, at least we know, you know, the ocean can't produce waves any bigger than this." Um, and you think, "Well, that kind of feels true, but I know it's not true. Um, the wave can produce much. The ocean can produce much bigger waves than this." Um, but it, it, it starts to sort of test physics. I mean, it was really getting giant. Um, and at a certain point, a little fishing boat um, came along, um, not from the village uh, Jardim de Mar there, where we were staying and surfing, but from another village. And this is way out on a remote coast of, of Madeira. There's no coast guard or anybody to help you if you have problems. And they came in strangely close and were studying us. And... and you know, they waved to us, and we waved to them, and, and I didn't think too much of it. Um, and then they, they motored away, and I, I afterward thought they had actually come in and were offering us a ride, and it was getting too big even to move in, and they were offering us a ride to another town, someplace where they could get their boat in, and we could just figure it out from there. In other words, they recognized that, that the swell was getting bigger and bigger. This was before good surf forecasting. So we didn't really know what we were in for, that it was this was a gigantic swell and this was just the beginning. I think actually a lot of uh, people reading the book sort of forget that uh, not so long ago you just didn't know when there was a big swell coming and you would paddle out and the waves could just keep getting bigger and bigger. You didn't know if it had peaked at lunchtime or was going to keep peaking all the way through the night. And uh, I think you are often in situations that just probably wouldn't happen these days because of that very fact. And this was one of them, of course. Yes, that, that was, that's an example of that. And on the other side of it, you know, before good online surf forecasting, you could also just luck out and be somewhere um, when a swell came in that nobody knew was coming. Um, this was even true in Hawaii um, when I was younger and lived on Maui. Um, we used to go out and camp in the country at Honolulu Bay in particular on West Maui. And, and sort of hope for waves in the morning. You didn't know. And sometimes it'd be six feet and there'd be nobody there. And you'd have, you know, half a day before people on other parts of the island figured it out and showed up and, and it got crowded. Yeah, it's, it's an, a, an amazing uh, period to have lived in. So going back to that evening at, uh, on Madeira, the, the surf was getting bigger and the sun was going down and you'd waved away the fishing boat. Yeah, so the, so the fishing boat went away and, and, and we realized that we had moved ridiculously far out trying to avoid these sets and, and we're never going to be able to catch a wave out that far. Um, we knew the spot pretty well by then. Um, and it's the biggest we'd ever seen it. Uh, and we'd, we'd surfed it, you know, triple overhead plus, but, but nothing like this. So we started moving in, moving in, trying to just get any wave to go in. And, um, and that wasn't working. We, we paddled for waves and our boards were just too small. We were just sort of blown out the back. Um, and then we tried to paddle for shore um, as, as the sun was going down. We, we just sort of paddled down the coast and, and aimed for shore. But there was far too powerful a down coast current just carried us right past the village past the little boat ramp and down into this uh sort of no man's land uh all cliffs and a sort of wilderness coast and 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 big shore break and uh we got pounded down there for a while and 
and it started getting dark, and um, I was actually so tired, I'd been surfing all day, that I was ready to go ashore, just wherever we were, just head for shore, and, and you know, climb up the rocks, whatever, and, and take our lumps, but, but, but at least be on shore somehow. And Peter said, no, that would, that would uh, be a suicidal move, and he persuaded me to, to try to paddle back to the village, although now we're a long, long way down coast with a big current, and as I said, I was really tired. And I actually think that that um, conversation in which he persuaded me to, to keep trying to paddle back to the village where we'd started and, and, and not give up and, and, and said he would stay with me um, probably saved my life. Um, that is, I don't think going ashore would have worked. And we made it back up there and, and, and we got hammered in the dark by this giant swell. But we did pound into the into the seawall and washed up onto the boat ramp and, and you know survived obviously and and um, it was a sort of crucial um, helping hand from a very good friend. So in that moment in the book where you're describing that scene and you're climbing, uh, I'm saying scene as if it's a movie. It kind of feels like a movie in my mind because of how well described it is when you're writing. But uh, one thing I think that you do very well with that story and a lot of the others in the book is I find myself reading it as a surfer and just thinking oh I know exactly what he means but at the same time you've managed to stay away from so many of the tired cliches that we see in surf writing and, and for me that was one of the reasons why I enjoyed the book so much um, and it did occur to me when I was reading it I, you know I wonder how much this would make sense to a non-surfing uh, audience and, and I was curious as to whether you had written the book for exclusively for a surfing audience or whether you wanted it to be uh, sort of accessible to non-surfers as well and, and what changes you might have made in the way that you wrote so that a non-surfing audience could could make it could be accessible to them yeah well it's very much written for the general reader you know the non-surfing reader um, I try and introduce each sort of technical surfing term that that appears early on in the book um, with a you know, little explanation, keep people oriented. Um, you have to pay close attention. I mean, I'm not going to do it again, and there's no glossary or anything. And I try and slip it in gently, mainly in the sort of childhood sections in Hawaii and California, so that it's not too annoying for surfers to read. You know, this is what uh -huh. a channel is. This is what a swell is. Um, but um, it's very much written for, for um, the general reader and, and in the surfing scenes, of which there are many, um, I try to keep people oriented and, and have them feel that there's you know, something at stake. I mean, the, the basic um, tools of drama to, to, to make something interesting to, to somebody who's not a, a fanatic like you and I. Um, and usually what's at stake is not, you know, life and death, as in that scene I was just describing in, at, at Jardim de Mar in Madeira, which was, um, you know, an unusually heavy scene. And the way to stay away from cliches, really, I think, is to be very, very specific and, and, and remember closely what actually happened. I mean, I mean, in the case of that night, you know, remember how it smelled and, and, and the sort of weird things we had to do to get ashore and what one saw at a given moment. I mean, those things keep you in the moment and, and, and don't you hope, um, devolve into cliches. Yeah, well, that's very interesting. I mean, I was, I was uh, as I was reading the book, uh, I was thinking, you know, I'm 38, and I was trying to think if I could accurately describe surf sessions that I'd had as a teenager. Uh, and the detail that you remember is extraordinary. And I was wondering whether that was sort of recollected or whether you had actually kept a journal from when you were very young, because I know you were very keen on, on literature and on writing from a young age. I did age. keep 
quite good journals when I was younger, um, and less so um, since I've got older. Um, but I also had access to a lot of letters, uh, friends returned letters. I used to be kind of a prolific correspondent and, and was happy to write about surfing and, you know, what the waves had been like. And so I had lots and lots of raw material to, to work from, luckily. Um, and, and of course, there's lots of other wonderful stories in the book, and, and I won't make you uh, recount any more if, if uh, people will need to go out and buy the book and, and read it, of course. But uh, the most famous one that I, I imagine you get asked about in all of your interviews is, of course, surfing Tavarua um, back before anyone really had. Uh, perhaps one or two people had surfed it before, but you went and stayed on the island. And you were actually surfing restaurants, uh, mostly, I think, wasn't it, rather than cloud break? That's right. We didn't even know that cloud break was out there. Um, for your listeners who don't know the spot, this is a, a couple of great waves in Fiji, one on an island, um, Tavarua, and then another on an offshore reef, uh, maybe a mile south of there. Um, my friend Brian DeSalvatore and I were, were camping, surfing, looking for waves in the South Pacific. This is in 1978. And um, we'd found a bunch of good waves in, in, in Tonga and Samoa and, and Fiji too. But um, but nothing you know uh, tremendous, nothing world class. And um, had uh, heard though on marine radio a little kind of muttering between surf boats. This was in in Suva, Fiji, about a three hundred yard left, a perfect three hundred yard left somewhere out west of where we were. Um, and that was from the the first boat. These guys who who'd seen it and surfed it and. Um, calling another boat and we'd overheard this and um, so we were out kind of looking for where that might be and and just by a long chain of um, lucky circumstances um, ran across one of the guys who was on that boat and, and kind of choked the details out of him where exactly this <laughs> island was an uninhabited island out in a in a in a chain called the Mamanuthas um, and so we made our way there, um, got local fishermen to, to take us out to the island, drop us off, and, and come back each week. There was no fresh water on the island, so we needed supplies about once a week, and, and water in particular. And uh, the waves a little bit fickle. I mean, we had some long flat spells, nine days, one stretch without any waves. But when the wave came, it was um, probably the best wave either of us had ever surfed. You know, it was just absolutely incredible. Um, shallow, fast, hollow left that just runs and runs and runs with no sections and runs to, and turns sort of back into the trade winds and, and um, uh, so the trades blow offshore um, even though it's south facing and, and the, the trades are out of the southeast. And, uh, so we camped there for, for most of that surf season and um, a few other surf yachts came in. By the end of the season we reckon there were nine of us who knew about it. Um, uh, including us, and, and we thought we'd keep it a secret, but that didn't work out. Yeah, and of course that spot now is one of the stops on the World Championship Tour that I'm sure all of our listeners watch on the webcast every, I think, June or July when they have the contest there. And and, and actually, I'll just, just skipping ahead a little bit, there was one scene in the book I really enjoyed um, where you were walking through Times Square and you were looking up at what I assume was Craig Anderson surfing at G-Land in the, on the TV of the window of the Quicksilver store. Oh, good guess, good guess, yes. And, and, and you sort of, uh, and you described that sort of, I guess it's kind of a contradiction that I think all of us have, have surfed for most of our lives have felt, which is the, the joy of discovery of a new spot and then the sort of the, 
uh, well, that emotion you feel when you see it exposed to the masses, and uh, and to and, and then of course those people going along and and uh, and surfing it. I, I don't know. Could you just talk a little bit about how how it sort of makes you feel, how it made you feel? Yeah. Well, the Tavarua was one thing. You know, a place we'd really kind of pioneered and and then became a resort. It became world famous. Um, I, by the way, later became a, a patron of that resort. I, went there constantly for about 10 years um, when I could no longer take it. <laughs> I just wanted to go back. Um, and then got, you know, turned on to Cloudbreak and, and became very, very fond of that wave. It's one of my favorite waves in the world now. Um, but that, that scene you mentioned in Times Square, um, right near uh, the New Yorker's offices, as they were for a long time, um, is, is, is a kind of general experience of mine, seeing, you know, surfing splashed across commercial surfaces all over the place, you know, to sell anything. And um, and often the images are places like Grajigan, G-Land in, in Indonesia that meant a lot to me at different points in my life. And, and I, I, you know, expended a lot of time and, and heart's blood to get to them and surf them. And, and now you see them sp splashed across giant billboards in Times Square um, selling God knows what. And... Uh, it is there's something I mean it's like this private thing that that's that's played out in in public and and it's hard to explain to anybody I mean why should you care and you can't really explain it but but it there is there is a kind of um, dissonance there and, and a little sourness too and 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 you kind of know the surfers even if you don't know them personally you know you mentioned Craig Anderson he's this beautiful surfer and not a contest surfer but but uh, it's incredible style a lot of his style is about kind of uh, renunciation, you know, he, he declines to do the the airs the and, and other things he can do, just, just sort of stands there, but stylishly, and, it, and it's meaningful to surfers, but it can't possibly be meaningful to all these other people walking by. It's, it's that kind of dissonance that, that stops me sometimes. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. I liked the moments in the book where you sort of took a step back and reflected on, for want of a less pretentious word, sort of surf philosophy. You know, you sort of uh, uh, talked a little bit about the role that surfing played in your life and played in other people's lives. And it was interesting hearing your view of that change as you mature and, you know, as you, as you grow older. Um, and and it, it feels a little bit like you're slightly reluctant to commit to the surfing as a religion people, the, the surfing as a lifestyle people, or the surfing as a sport people, and you kind of like, you kind of like, one moment you might feel like this, and the next moment you might feel a little bit more like that, which I think is a true reflection of how a lot of us feel. There's a short passage I'd like to read from the book, which I think actually came from your two-part series for The New Yorker, playing Docs Games, which you wrote back in 1992, um, but was also in, in Barbarian Days. Mark liked to say that surfing is essentially a religious practice, but there was too much performance, too much competition, however unstructured, too much appetite and raw preening in it for that description to ring true to me. Style was everything in surfing. How graceful your moves, how quick your reactions, how clever your solutions to the puzzles presented, how deeply carved and cleanly linked your turns, even what you did with your hands. Great surfers could make you gasp at the beauty of what they did. They could make the hardest moves look easy, Casual power, the proverbial grace under pressure, these were our bow ideals. Pull into a heavy barrel, come out cleanly, act like you've been there before, make it look good. That was the real fascination and terror of photos of oneself. Do I look good? 
If this was a religion, perhaps it didn't bear thinking about what was being worshipped. And I just thought that was uh, very, very perceptive. And, and it, and it kind of led me on to a lot of our guests that come and stay with us down here in, in Costa Rica uh, every week. I, I often find myself saying to them, and, and this may be something you actually disagree with, and I'm just interested to hear your thoughts. I often say to them that it, I think it's the way to get the most joy out of surfing is to approach it as a sport. Even less than that, maybe saying it's just a fun way of staying fit. And that isn't to belittle the, the people you meet, the adventures that you have, the places you go, and the, the heartache that can come along with the, the failures and the triumphs. But I think that all of that stuff kind of comes on its own. Uh, and I think that if one puts it up on too much of a pedestal, uh, actually that can sort of detract from it. Um, maybe that's a little bit too much, uh, uh, maybe that's a bit too abstract, but I was just wondering if you, if you kind of had any thoughts on that and on the role that surfing's played in your life. Um, yeah, that's not too abstract. And, um, and I think that um, probably from experience, um, you've learned that it's a, it's a wise approach to not lay too much on surfing um, when you're trying to learn. Um, but of course, if you if you do learn to surf and, and you get serious about it and it becomes a a big part of your life or like an obsession at the center of your life, which was true for me and and a lot of the people I grew up with, um, it you have to find a way to control it and and to understand it and um, and it ends up being, I mean, I have this kind of bipolar life where I I mainly write about politics and and you know sort of dash around the world being a political journalist and 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 book writer and then this other uh, the other pole of this this bipolar life is, is surfing which is, is sort of for me represents you know irresponsibility and and is sort of the north pole of that you know it's, it's nature worship it's it's um it's it's quite beyond you know a, a hobby or a, a sport um you know it, it's you know doing surfing seriously um at least as I've done it and understood it um is a involves a real you know sort of um uh abandonment of of um, the civic virtues you know duty responsibility productivity I mean it's it's a supremely um unproductive thing to be doing and um but it's 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 this book is, is partly about the struggle against responsibility, um, which, which surfing has represented for me. Because I'm also, you know, quite um, interested in, in being useful and being a, a citizen. That's where the, the title, Barbarian Days, kind of comes from. You know, it's, I admire barbarians, but I also want, you know, in the classical sense, but I also, I also want to be a citizen. I want to be productive and, and, and in my case that means writing and, and informing my readers and, and you know having opinions and and uh, holding you know speaking truth to power as they say um, and uh, doing journalism and and, and surfing is the the other side of my life they, they it it comprises a, a sort of worthy counterweight to almost everything I do careeristically yes yeah and and I thought uh, reading about when you were off on that incredible long adventure that uh, sort of was through most of your 20s, uh, you know, through the Pacific and Australia and then South Africa before you came back to the United States. Um, I, I really related to that sense that 
looking back as a successful professional, it's a wonderful adventure. But when you're in the middle of it, without a successful career behind you, you, you really struggled with quite often, you know, what am I really doing? Why am I really here? And, uh, and, and I think that, you know, that's certainly something that, that I felt when I was going off on similar adventures in my early 20s as well. Um, and I, I wondered if there's anyone, you know, in their early 20s perhaps going off on, on their version of that same adventure, what advice you might give to them? What, what sort of word to the wise you might share with them? You know, I, I, I actually hear from, from friends or, or like kids of friends um, who are serious surfers and, and kind of wondering what they're doing with their lives. Not exactly as I did or you might have done, but, um, you know, they, 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 all they really want to do is surf. And, and yet they worry, you know, I, I'm, my friends are off to professional schools or graduate schools and, and here I am and Indonesia, and um, and I try to be reassuring, you know, that that um, that that you can surf your brains out and 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 also you know have a life um, that you know it's possible to do both. I mean, for me, it's sometimes been a conflict, but but you know you can get lots of ways and also write books and 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 it is something you can do more, you know, wholeheartedly when you're young, usually. And, and there's no doubt that you can chase it too far. Um, there's, you know, a chapter in my book called um, Against Dereliction, which comes from a, a quote. The guy in that chapter is, is a really, really good surfer in San Francisco is talking about how dangerous a sport it is, how, you know, as he puts it, the biggest locals are the biggest derelicts. Um, meaning to say, if you, if you, you know, heart and soul everything into surfing, you're liable to end up, you know, without a much uh, life, without a profession, you know, you're, you're 60 years old and working as a busboy, and, and nothing wrong with working as a busboy, but it's, it's perhaps not everything you wanted in life, and, and surfing can do that. It has that, that power of, of, um, of addiction. And um, and I worry about some young people I know, but but most of them not. Who have if they have the sense to know that 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 surfing's uh, only part of life, and they've got to sort of keep it under control and not let let it take over their whole life. Um, they're usually going to be okay. Yeah, I find I find myself often saying to people a, a sort of similar thing. I think surfing makes a great cornerstone to your life, but not something to put in the centre. I mean, you know, unless you're one of the very lucky few that actually do go on to become professional surfers. Um, so there was those three main characters in the book that really stuck out to me. There's your friend Brian, who you travel around with for many years, and then of course there's Doc, who you wrote the famous series of articles for the New Yorker about playing Doc's games. Um, but the character that interested me the most was John Selya, who was, uh, for our listeners who don't know, a, a choreographer, an actor, and a ballet dancer who was in a lot of shows on Broadway. And the reason that I was particularly interested in, in him was because you talked about how he had this kind of analytical approach to surfing, which I assume came from his background as a dancer and as a choreographer. And you say sort of early on in the book how you didn't see many people continue to progress as adults, but then he was the one exception. And you, you sort of were very good friends with him and surfed with him a lot. And I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about, you know, his, his approach and, and, uh, and what made him unique in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, John's um, uh, he's a goofy foot. He's quite an explosive, precise surfer. 
Um, he lives here in New York. In fact, he's going to Hawaii today because we have no waves here, and Hawaii's got good waves. <laughs> um, he's absolutely fanatical about surfing. Um, but he has a big career as a dancer. I mean, he's a sort of leading man on, on Broadway in musical theater, and, um, and he's had a long career as a classical ballet dancer. And um, I was amazed when we first surfed together at how incredibly serious he was about it. Um, that is to say, you know, he'd get a good wave and, and you'd say, you'd, you'd, you know, compliment him. You'd see the wave, you know, great wave, John. He'd say, ah, I've got to get more vertical. And you'd think, what are you talking about, you know? It was a beautifully <laughs> surfed wave and yet he's thinking, you know, well, beyond this. And this is a guy in his mid-30s when we, I think he was in probably his early 30s when we started surfing together. And and I realized that he was so intent, I mean, you know, watching videos all the time and and thinking critically about his surfing, you know, with obviously great balance as a, as a dancer, really, really strong center of gravity, and, and that he was always pushing himself, you know, okay, I did that just fine, but I know I can do that turn harder, come off it higher, and, 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 that, and I realized after a couple of years that his surfing was actually improving, um, which you never see, yeah, somebody past the age of 30, nobody improves, um, you just sort of struggle to maintain and then slowly lose it. Um, it and and yet he's I've, we've been surfing together for a good ten years now, um, mostly around New York, but also in in Puerto Rico and Fiji and Indonesia. We've taken trips together, um, and he uh, he continues to improve. I mean, he's just so um, uh, sort of precise and disciplined about it. Unlike most surfers, who I think you know, um, if they're not pros, they they just kind of do their best and, and call it good. Yeah, and, and we're actually recording this on December 14th, which is the day before quite a good-sized swell is supposed to hit the North Shore with the Pipe Masters possibly running tomorrow. So John's going out there to take on that swell, is he? I don't know. He actually had um, hip surgery recently, so he's not his usual... Di- I mean, he's just as surf-crazed as ever, um, but he's got he's to take it a little bit easy with his hip. Um, he was on a long board recently, you know, kind of getting his feet back under him. So I don't think he's going to be charging pipeline tomorrow. <laughs> but he is going to Hawaii because they have waves. Also, I think he's got some work there. I think he's going to do some dancing. So uh, one of the one of the other moments in the book, which is actually the final page of the book, actually, uh, which I really enjoyed, is when you return to uh, the island of Tavaru in Fiji and you're surfing out at cloud break on what sounds like a really big day and uh, you unfortunately have a nasty wipeout where I, I did you perforate your eardrum or no it was something in the trachea I mean I was I was coughing blood or sort of having to cough blood to to get a breath but um it wasn't from my ears it, it didn't even actually hurt it was just blood pooling in my throat I don't know what it was and uh I, I, that wasn't the part I enjoyed by the way <laughs> <laughs> but uh but you were going to go in but then you're out there with one of the local surf guides called Inya who um, sort of said to you, I'll, uh, I'll st- be safe. I, I, there was a, a line I quite liked when, when you said, he told me to be safe, whatever that meant, and I'll stay near you, whatever that meant. And then you, you carry on surfing together, and he helps you uh, predict some of the waves and with positioning when you take off, and, and you have what, you, what seems to be what, you know, one of your most enjoyable sessions of the book, uh, at least for many years. And, uh, you know, I just wondered if you could just talk a little bit about, about that session out there with him and, and you talk about that knowledge he seemed to have uh, that, that even with your decades of experience was, was, was seemed to be beyond you. Sure. Um, it was a, a sort of supreme demonstration of, of local wave knowledge, which is something I'm very interested in and, and is, is obviously a sort of 
central part of surfing, local wave knowledge. I was, I was out in, yeah, pretty big waves at, at, at Cloud Break with just one other guy, a Fijian guy. And, uh, and I got hurt, just took a stupid fall, but hit, hit the side of my face quite hard. And, and he wanted to go in because I was coughing blood and he was saying, you know, we should go in, we should go in. He's supposed to be looking out for me. And I said, no, please, we got to stay out here. It was just really, it was getting good. It was a little bumpy, which is why I'd fallen, but it was really, really good. And it was just the two of us. Um, and he was enjoying the surf so much himself, he, he sort of weakened and said, okay, but I'm going to keep close eye on you, whatever that means in, you know, <laughs> double overhead cloud break. <laughs> and uh, what it meant was that, that he was calling me into waves. I mean, it was really long walls. It was, it was a kind of a southwesterly swell that, that um, comes in, in in a way that's hard to read. You know, some of the waves are going to close out, and, and others are just going to just peel down the reef, and I could not tell the difference looking at them. Um, and, and Inya started calling me into waves. He'd say, no, Bill, not that one. And it just looked like a, another giant wall. Okay, I'll paddle over this one. Next one, another giant wall, identical to me. He'd say, this one, Bill. And I'd turn, and I'd go, and I was serving fairly conservatively. I didn't want to, after this injury, end up on the reef. And, and I just got great wave after great wave. I did not fall again this whole session. I mean, every wave I got was makeable. And, and I'd pull out way, way, way down the reef somewhere, and there Inu would be on the wave behind mine, um, surfing a little more recklessly and wildly than me. And it was just this, this, this beautiful session, and, and, and it, was, it was a place to end the book. It was one of those sessions that was kind of desperate. You know, I should go in, I got hurt, I don't know what's the matter, but I, I just cannot let this go. I cannot bear for this to end. Yeah, I think that's a, a lovely way for you to finish the book and, 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 and the interview. And there's, there's just one more question that I'd like to ask you. Um, you know, you sort of alluded earlier to how as, as we get older, you know, it becomes more and more and more difficult to keep improving with our surfing. And, you know, I work every day with people as a coach who are, uh, you know, extremely motivated and, and physically fit and smart people who've not been fortunate enough to be exposed to surfing as a young person uh, like you and I have. And, and I wondered, you know, what, what advice or you, might, you might give to those people. Well, um, surfing's hard to, hard to learn. And, uh, and the, the kind of um, muscle memory you, you get as a kid um, surfing is, is not necessarily obtainable in the same way um, when you're older. Um, a lot of things I've taken up tennis, skiing, um, as an adult, um, I love doing, but I know I'll never, um, be sort of natural at it the way I would be when I was a kid. Um, so uh, if you're serious about surfing and you're an adult and, and, and relatively new to it, um, I think you have to, 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 to make your goals a kind of ease on the board that's 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 attainable not not be looking at you know incredible surfers have been doing it since they're seven and thinking that's what i need to do i need to do what that guy's doing because that doesn't that doesn't come to you i don't think um you have you have to you learn a, a different style and a, and, a, and, a, and a sort of different speed of reflex and 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 you can learn waves and that's the most important part to be able to read waves well and then and then sort of um conform your your abilities and 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 the maneuvers you master to the waves um and and not think oh i must you know learn how to do an aerial or or whatever the the hottest kid in the lineup is doing 
Bill, thank you very much for taking a time out of what I'm sure is a very busy day to uh, to talk with us on the Surf Simply podcast. And uh, uh, yeah, and on behalf of all our listeners, uh, I hope you get some more fun waves and and perhaps even write about them again. Thanks, Ru. Thanks very much. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply Coaching Resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com. Thank you.